Well, this morning we do um, resume a series that we tend to do every summer uh, through the Psalms. Uh, and so today we're in Psalm 2. Psalm 2. So if you have a copy of God's Word, it'd be great if you turned with me to Psalm 2. So it's right near the middle of your Bible. Psalm 2. If not, there are the, the words will be on the screen. So turn your attention to the reading of God's Word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him." Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And now let's seek his help and his guidance in opening our hearts as we come before his word. Father, we do thank you for this word. Uh, Lord, these are not perfunctory prayers, um, things just done out of um, ritual, but because we desperately need you to be at work in our hearts and in our minds to help us know your word and to see you in this word. I need you to strengthen me. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit today, that I would proclaim your truth clearly uh, and, and beautifully. Uh, Lord, I pray for the hearts that hear and the ears that hear, that, that they would be open, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name today. We pray these things for your glory and for our good and joy. In Christ's name, amen. Laundry, dishes, trying to kill a mole or moles in my backyard right now, vacuuming or cleaning the car, or my 11-year-old continually coming after me to get me to wrestle thinking he's actually going to win. Now, what do all of these things have in common? Futility. <laughs> they are futile endeavors. They feel completely futile in the sense that they're ineffective, that they won't last or do what we hope they would do. No matter how often we do the dishes or the laundry, there's always more there. Vacuuming a house with six people and two dogs, I think that says enough. Um, I feel like sometimes if I could just attach the vacuum to my arm and the battery would stay charged the whole time, I still couldn't keep up. You know, and I'm also finding out I'm not very good at setting traps for those little creatures destroying my backyard at this point. And then I also wonder at times why my son thinks he's going to win against me in wrestling. Now, I'm not talking about the 17-year-old. I'm talking about the 17-year-old I stay away from. The 11-year-old I, I will go near. Um, you know, none of these have the lasting effect that's hoped for. Yet we continue to do them. 
Now, some because they simply need to be done. You, you can't have Mount Dishmore and more laundry than, uh, than anything in your, in your room very easily. It just doesn't work. It's part of life. And others we do because, honestly, we're not the brightest people or the best estimators of our own abilities. And it's there that I want to stay for a moment because the reality is we all act that way pretty consistently. We do it every single time we sin. Sin is in, in one sense an, an overestimation of our, of our judgment, of our understanding of what is good for us. We discount what God has said and we turn after our own pursuits. And so we, whether, whether consciously or not, we view His ways as inhibiting, as, as chains, as holding us back from experiencing something better. And this is the human propensity. It's the desire to rebel against God, and it is truly the ultimate example of futility. Of something utterly done in vain, it is the epitome of foolishness. Now, as we resume this summer in the psalm series, we do so by looking at Psalm 2. And here's a psalm that looks at the futility of that human desire as well as the response of the sovereign Lord. Now, this is the second of two psalms that really introduce the work, uh, what's called the Psalter, as a whole. And some consider that Psalms, in two, psalms 1 and 2 are, are one work. I think they're separate, but they are intricately connected, beautifully linked to one another. And as we get back into this recurring series, I want to remind us all of the theme of the Psalter. And those of you who have been around can probably say it already, but it's blessed are all who take refuge in the King who reigns. Blessed are all who take refuge in the King who reigns. And we're going to see this very clearly in Psalm 2. And as we work through this text, we're going to do so very simply by working through the four strophes. Now, strophes are just a, a technical way, and it's just going to help us down the road, a technical way. My wife's laughing at me because I use big words. Uh, but it's a technical way of, of saying, yeah, it's a short word. Thank you, Danny. Um, so we'll get to this a third time. It's a technical way of saying a grouping of lines, okay? And if you look in your Bibles, you'll see four groupings, each with three verses, Okay, and so we're going to go through all four of these. First is dealing with human desire. The second, we find the heavenly response. The third speaks of the heritage of the Son. And the fourth is a call to heed wisdom. Okay? So in all this, I hope and pray that we see not only our tendencies towards this futile rebellion ourselves, but that we hear and heed the call to live a blessed life of refuge and the messianic king who reigns. So, the way this psalm begins really, it sets the tone for the whole psalm, and it's masterful. And the more I read the psalms, the more and more I fall in love with them. Listen to this first strophe again. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. From the very first word, you catch the, the tenor, the, the drift of the psalm. The, the why here is not so much of a question as it's a, it's a statement of absolute astonishment. 
It's, it's astonishment that people would be so foolish as to fight against the Lord, but yet they do, and they, they rage. They're in an uproar. The word plot here, it actually, this is one of those areas of connection with Psalm 1. In Psalm 1 verse 2, the same word that's translated as plot here is translated as meditate in verse 2 of Psalm 1. And it's a word that really means to, to mutter, to to, to grumble in your breath, um, to, to muse over, to imagine. And so, when it's in reference to Scripture, it's an idea of meditating, meditating on those Scriptures, meditating on the Word of God. But here, instead of that, instead of meditating on God's words, the people are actually devising and plotting ways to fight against the Lord. And they're plotting vain things. The NLT translates this, why do they waste their time with futile plans. The Psalms point to this futility in numerous places, maybe not directly and outright, but Psalm 46.6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. Then it says, he utters his voice, the earth melts. So, if you compare the, the nations are rage and the kingdoms totter, the Lord can just utter his voice and the earth will melt. That's not really a, a very fair fight, okay? It's, it, but, it, but yet the nations continue to do it. The one who spoke the universe into existence can, can speak and merely take care of it all. In Psalm 29, a beautiful psalm that compares the, the voice of the Lord to um, the sound of thunder in a mighty thunderstorm, that it strips the forest bears, that it makes the, the deer to calf, and, and, and it's just a, a beautiful, beautiful psalm. And so, what it's saying here is, this rebellion is vain. It's going to be ineffective. And the people are seeking to carry out this rebellion specifically against the visible ruler of God. They're fighting against His anointed one, against the Messiah, the King. In the historical context of this psalm, they're fighting against the the Davidic king, so the, the king who's in the line of King David. But in the greater context of redemptive history, they're actually fighting against Christ Jesus Himself, the ultimate Davidic King. And the desire of these people, these rulers, and really too often of our own hearts, is to burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, they view the design of the Creator in regard to His people as bonds and fetters and chains and shackles. They want freed from what they view as slavery, as nothing but an inhibition for their desire towards complete autonomy. They believe that true freedom equals autonomy. They don't see that that God's ways and God's law and God's rules are actually there for our good. Sinful men and women, all of us really by nature, we don't want to walk. We, we, we don't want to live within the good limits that God has placed on us as creatures. I heard this illustration. We're, we're like the fish who jumps out of the boat, or jumps out of the water into the boat, is laying there flapping around. The gills are going nuts, and it's thinking, finally I'm free! Because they got out. They, they did what they wanted rather than to live in the way that they've been designed. Do so because 
we often refuse to live as God created us. And we see this in a lot of ways. Some are highly visible, some are a bit more subtle. And we know that even as we can see some of those visible ones in others, that the root is just as strong in us. You know, it's rebellion to go against the created order of men and women, husband and wife. Honestly, any sexual morality is rebellion against the created order. But that's one of those visible areas. But really, any time we go against the commands and statutes of the Lord, we rebel against Him and try and proclaim our own autonomy and say that we know better than the one who created us. As we do this, we claim to be masters of our own universe, the the last two lines of the poem Invictus. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So many of us have that little complex, don't we? The little God complex that we're our own master. And all of this, I think, really speaks to how poorly we view the Lord how poorly we know who He is. We don't understand that the truth that God's ways are actually for our good because we have this tendency to view any constraints on what we do as just that, a constraint that just binds us up. 1 John 5, 3, we read, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. They're not bonds in the way people view them. They're designed for our good. They're designed for our flourishing. I think of Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's saying, take my ways, follow my teaching, stay within that. It's, it's a good way, and you'll find rest for your soul. Stop fighting against it. Stop trying to grab your own yoke, because we're a slave to something. We're either a slave to ourselves and our desire for whatever we want and sin, or we're a slave to Christ and His righteousness, and we find rest for our souls. Folks, following the ways of the Lord is not a straitjacket. It is actually freedom and rest and life. And so when we view God's ways as chains and bonds, it tells me that we actually, at the heart of it, we don't understand who God is, and we overestimate ourselves. And we don't know His character, His grace, His compassion, and His mercy. This is the human desire. It's autonomy. We want to do our own thing, to run our own lives, but the sovereign Lord is not silent in response to this rebellion. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The response is laughter. Laughter that actually moves to, to scoffing, to derision. Now, now, this laughter is not so much directed at, at what will come about, though he certainly knows their end. But I think it's actually focused on the foolishness and arrogance of the creature. 
foolishness and arrogance of the creature, thinking that they're going to overtake the Lord. Psalm 37, 13, the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees his day is coming. Or 59, 8, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision because they continue to rebel. This is the response of the one who actually sits in heaven. He sits enthroned. That's the, by, by using the verb sits, it tells you he's enthroned. He's reigning. It's very purposeful language. And what it tells you is he's not threatened. He is not threatened by this at all. The Lord does not need to stand to respond. He doesn't need to kind of rear up his cackles or anything at like that. He just sits there and he laughs. He's like, what are they doing? There's no risk to the Lord being dethroned. But laughter is not all that's heard. For the Lord turns to rebuke. He speaks in his wrath and his anger and his fury. And this is not a minor rebuke. This is one that actually says it will terrify those who hear. So what is this that that the Lord says that will bring this distress, that will strike fear and terror in the minds and the hearts of the nations? Is it, I'm going to send my mighty army to crush you like the little ants and, you know, peons that you are. Is it, do you not know who you're fighting against? This is ridiculous. I'm going to crush you. No. Instead, what he says is, for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That terrifies the nations. I'm sorry, but that's not a terrifying statement. Like some guy, you're, you're in a fist fight on the, in the road, and he's like, hey, I set my king on my hill. I'm like, what? Whatever. But this, this is what terrifies the nations. You know, he says, you can rage all you want, but I've done this. My king is going to rule, and he rules now. God has set his ruler over them. And what this takes us back to in a lot of ways that, that I think is helpful for us to understand is the establishment of this covenant with David, establishing the line of David, the, 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 the Davidic kingship. So if you, if you want to, you can turn to 2 Samuel 7, uh, and we'll start in verse 8. It says, there, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Okay, so the Lord's going to set... And, and, and propagate your name. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Remember that phrase. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of iron, with the stripes the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. 
and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan, the prophet, spoke to David. So what that's telling us is this line of David was established, that there would be a Davidic king on the throne and that his kingdom would be forever. And so that helps establish that. This, this is the Lord's response. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now let's hear from the one that he set there. Turn to verse 7 in Psalm 2. It says, I will tell of the decree. So this is likely the, the king who's speaking. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So, as I said, this is what the, the newly coronated king would have very likely said as he was presented. And the decree, he says, I will tell the decree, points to that establishment of the covenant with David and his descendants. So the king, and initially David, would declare very clearly that his kingship is by God's decree. It's the result of of being king then, too, that there's now a special relationship between the king and the Lord. It'll be a father and son relationship. God will be to him a father, and he will be to God a son. He's adopted in a special way for a purpose, and that purpose is to lead, to rule, to shepherd his people. Now, for the human king, this, this was true, definitely, but the extent was limited. The extent was limited. It was only in the person of Jesus Christ that these words are truly fulfilled, that you see the ultimate fulfillment. This is actually a song that Jesus sings, Psalm 2 is his, are His words at the baptism of Jesus. We read in Matthew 3.17, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we hear much the same at His transfiguration. In Matthew 17.5, He was still speaking when, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Each of these instances also really refer to Isaiah 42, 1, the, the song of the servant, where it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The ruler of the people of Israel, of God's chosen people, had a very significant role. Paul made it crystal clear, though, for us later in Scripture that all of this refers ultimately to Jesus. Acts 13, 32 and 33, and this is in the midst of a, a sermon, and I'd encourage you to read that whole sermon. Paul said, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Further in Romans 1, Paul is also explicit about this. He writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, so in the Davidic line, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
The Son of God is now, by, by, by the, the fact of the resurrection, He's declared as the one with power. Now, that power was always there. He didn't lose His power, but post-resurrection, His, his ministry of humiliation was over. Jesus conquered sin and death and hell, and it is this King that truly terrifies the nations, all the people. He's the one that has true dominion. All the nations are His heritage. They are His right. His rule spans every square inch of the universe. Some of this is echoed in Psalm 72, which is a psalm of Solomon, the the next king after David. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May all kings fall down before him, all nations served him. Solomon had a majestic kingdom, but all the nations did not serve him. That will only happen in Christ. This is the one of whom Daniel also wrote. In Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Jesus, our sovereign king, rules and reigns. And he does so, it says, with a rod of iron, one that will both break the nations and shepherd his people. It's both for for punishment and for shepherding and for rule. And that picture is picked up in Revelation, addressing the second coming of our Lord, Revelation 19, 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that final picture, the the consummation of all things, it's not yet true. It's not here yet. It will come but it is not yet. And so, in the meantime, the final verses of the psalm provide much-needed wisdom for all people of the earth to heed and to respond to appropriately. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Folks, what these verses further reinforce is this, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns unchallenged, but the Lord reigns with justice and love and grace. This is a warning but it's also uh, an exhortation and an invitation. An invitation that says, take the way of wisdom. Take the way of wisdom. It is a beautiful breakthrough of grace. The king is not a tyrant. He's not capricious. He's just and merciful. 
And so since that is who God is, He warns and He invites. He warns and He invites. He's made clear what will happen to those who to con- con- continue to rebel. But He also makes very clear what is for those who serve the Lord, who turn to Him, those who serve Him reverently with proper fear, who rejoice in it with trembling, and are, are those who will experience the beauty of His grace. Now, that phrase, rejoice with trembling, is kind of puzzling. We don't speak like that. But there is a tension, isn't there? There's, there's a tension in a, in a creator-creature relationship. We, we do rejoice at the good and gracious and just and loving and, and righteous reign of the Lord. But we also tremble at the power, and we tremble at, at what awaits those who continue in their rebellion. That's not the focus. That's, that's a reminder in many ways here. The focus is instead on that invitation, kiss the sun. Pay homage to the sun. Serve the sun. Cease your rebellion. Cease your futility. Cease these vain objectives that you have and experience life. Experience blessedness. Because if you stay on the way of rebellion, you will perish, which that actually links back to Psalm 1, verse 6. You'll see that. But this blessed idea really serves as a bookend between Psalms 1 and Psalms 2. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. And then Psalm 2 ends on this strikingly comforting note, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And so you even get an idea of what some of that refuge looks like. It looks like getting to know the Lord in His Word, meditating on it, loving Him in that way, Now, the way the Lord can say this, can say, come, kiss the sun, is because it's fulfilled, the the answer that, that blessedness is fulfilled by the anointed one. Not, though, because primarily that he's a, a, an unconquerable ruler and mighty warrior, though he is that, but because he, as king, became a servant for us. He actually lived the life that we're called to live, that we can't, a life of no rebellion, a life of perfect obedience. And then He was actually put to death for our life of rebellion, our life of futility. He lived the most non-futile life ever and was put to death for our futility. That's grace. He did it so that we could be forgiven. He was put to death by the kings and the rulers who raged against Him. And they thought they had won. They had overestimated their abilities. And He rose and conquered death 
declared to be the Son of God in power, and now He calls out to rebels as the risen King, come to me, cease your rebellion and live. Cease your rebellion and live and know grace and know what it is to be blessed. Come, stand in triumph with the King who reigns and be blessed as you take refuge in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and Your truth in our lives. Lord, may we heed this warning. May we heed Your grace and Your warning and Your invitation and turn and sing and worship Christ, our risen King. Lord, thank You for the beauty of Scripture, the beauty of the Son, and that blessed invitation that calls us out of our darkness and futile ways into the blessedness of relationship with the King of the universe. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.